1: This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello and welcome to another episode of Deep State Radio, another week of... Uh, In April of 2021, I'm your host, David Rothkopf, and I'm in New York City. I'm joined uh, this week from Washington, D.C. by our friend, Corey Schake at the American Enterprise Institute. How are you, Corey?
0: I am exceedingly well and vaccinated, David.
1: Congratulations. I understand you did that in the most efficient way possible.
0: Yes, the J&J vaccine. So one and done, although... Um, it does feel like a bad hangover today. I keep hearing the Aztec phrase, which means the curse of the 400 rabbits, which was their term for a hangover.
1: The, did you go out drinking with the Aztecs?
0: <laughs> yes, I did. And intend to again.
1: Wow, that's a <laughs> that could be dangerous. And also, uh, I, I believe uh, once vaccinated, we have with us Ed Luce of the Financial Times. How are you doing, Ed?
2: Very well, although it, it made my first shot, the Madonna, made me feel like the curse of my daughter's dead rabbit. There's only one <laughs> of us not 400. You know, rabbits,
1: given given the history of that rabbit, I believe rabbits, when they're having a bad day, say it's the curse of 400 Ed (laughs) Luce's. They
2: they might have a point.
1: They might have a point. point. I think in a little while we will be uh, joined by uh, Rosa Brooks, who's someplace out there, and when she joins us, she'll join us. But, you know, what I wanted to talk about today, I've been thinking about this a little bit, is Uh, You know, we talk about national security and, uh, you know, as we have often noted on this show, if you go back to George Kennan's long telegram, which, you know, all of us do on a regular basis, you know, it ends with its description of the threat of the Soviets by saying the way we stay strong, the way we defeat them is by being strong at home, uh, uh, by living up to our values, but also by having a prospering society. Uh, and, it, and it's undoubtedly true that the United States has maintained its uh, strength, not just by having a big military, but by being able to pay for one, by being able to uh, pay to invest following setbacks of one sort or another, including, as we've seen recently, uh, this pandemic or, or 10 years ago, as we saw the uh, recession. Um, and so, the, you know, the, the, the real question is, what kind of investments in ourselves make us stronger? What makes us stronger overseas um, by, you know by domestic the result of domestic policies? And that can include not just spending money, but also by setting an example for the world. And one of the reasons I was thinking of all of this was that uh, President Biden last week issued his kind of rough draft of the budget. Uh, which was $1.5 trillion, um, which really sort of rejiggered spending priorities from the Trump years, more money for um, uh, social programs, more money for, uh, in particular, uh, health-related programs and education-related programs, and a little more money uh, for defense, uh, like 1.5 percent or something like that, as opposed to the 10 percent that was kind of anticipated in in prior budgets, and I thought we should talk about that. But you know, from the perspective of what makes us stronger around the world, do you have any? Before I get into specifics, do you have any uh, reactions to any of this off the top of your head, Corey?
0: Yes, I have two reactions to it off the top of my pointy little head, David. The <laughs> first is that um, I agree that. Education and portable healthcare, that is healthcare that's not tied to employment, are two of the best things we could do for strengthening ourselves at home and strengthening ourselves abroad. Because um, having healthcare tied to people's jobs is a huge disincentive to changing jobs. And so it distorts the labor market in a way that benefits companies and doesn't benefit um, startups, doesn't benefit the churn that America's economy does so well. Um, And then education, because we basically import the talent we need. And I think the costs, well, let me just quote Horace Mann, the founder of America's public school system. Education is the arc of our political safety. Outside of this, all is deluge. And I think we're seeing a lot of that as people wrestle to understand um, you know, information in a hyperconnected age, that we gotta get smarter. And that too has economic as well as political consequences, right? More innovation, more creativity, uh, higher productivity, Um, and therefore rising pay. Uh, So I would love to see major investments in both those areas. And I'm glad to see that the Biden administration's making those priorities. I think, um, I do think the basic argument that strengthening ourselves at home will strengthen us abroad is true. That said, my second point is that um, I don't think uh, a... 4% 4% insurance policy in the form of defense spending is an unreasonable expense. I think the Biden administration played the politics of the defense budget incredibly adroitly. They didn't want to risk being caricatured or characterized as soft on defense. But, uh, you know, the strategy of the previous administration required year on year three to five percent increases in defense spending to be executable and the biden administration has actually taken a more ambitious national security strategy than the trump administration has and so um they are creating an enormous gap between what we say we're going to do and what we might have the ability to do And I would hate to see that inspire the Chinese or the Russians to test us on that. And the last thing that I'll say is that I am also uh, suspicious that when we actually see the figures rather than just the top line of defense spending, that the Biden administration is going to push a whole bunch of climate change initiatives and social programs into the defense budget, so you will be getting less war fighting capacity out of that money that's in the defense budget.
1: Well, let's come back to some of the specifics of that, but let me give uh, Ed a chance to uh, react.
2: Um, I'm
0: sorry I went on so long, David. No,
1: no, not at all. That's, uh, that's why we're here. In-depth analysis. Go ahead, Ed.
2: Uh, no, I, I agree with most of what Corey said. I was unaware, sorry, of the defense budget um, sleight of hand that you were talking about, I'll have to look into that. But um, the um, issue that I can think of first and foremost that would be a domestic reform that would strengthen America globally is passing the For the People Act um, and and the John Lewis Act is, is getting uh, American democracy in order. And if necessary, breaking the filibuster in order to do so, the filibuster that John Calhoun instrument perfected during Jim Crow for Jim Crow reasons, um, it would be the most apt moment to get rid of it. Um, uh, That might sound radical, but all it would do was would bring up sort of uh, regular voting practices in any other Western democracy to standard in the United States. We cannot have this return to Jim Crow that we're seeing. And so I think that's the most important thing America can do at home to strengthen itself reputationally and morally um, on the global stage. Um, I think in terms of um, specific um, uh, economic policies, uh, w- one, one move that we've yet to sort of see fleshed out from Biden but that he's been talking about and um, is certainly in his sights is tackling money laundering, is tackling dirty money that pervades um, so many of the legal firms and accounting firms and financial firms in America that enables the world's autocrats and others and criminal groups um, basically to evade the law and evade taxes and evade lots of consequences um, and that sullies the American system and and that sullies American politics. And so I think tackling money laundering at home would be an incredibly important step to tackling kleptocracy and autocracy overseas. And then I should also mention, again, something embryonic um, uh, in the Biden, um, uh, we're early early days in the Biden administration, but something that I would like to see emerge and that they have referred to, um, and that some hints are included in the infrastructure plan is a a full-scale industrial policy um, that would um, look at AI, that would look at robotics, that would look at climate, and and green tech and have a a Cold War era research and development budget um, to match. And, you know, there is some down payment on that. There's a $50 billion item in Biden's infrastructure plan. But I I think this is hugely important, not just for American competitiveness, but also for um, meeting the China challenge and giving a platform around which America's allies and partners can coalesce. Uh, not not an American dictated platform, but something that is credibly American-led or, or partly shaped, um, at least. And that means global technology standards, global digital standards, and a, 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 a global open internet, you know, that isn't some um, backdoor controlled Huawei um, um, thing. And that that involves industrial policy, a dirty word until recently sh- that should be, that is long overdue to be cleaned up.
1: This is what I like to hear. The centrally planned shift at the financial times. <laughs> um,
0: well played, David. <laughs> the,
1: that, 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 you know, Ber- Ed Luce is the Bernie bro of the FT, um, <laughs> which we call pink on pink, but no. I, I agree with you 100%. I, I, I just got
0: the pink on pink, David. Th- thank you. Thank you.
1: I that, I totally agree with that, obviously. Uh, I think Rosa Brooks has stopped her car in a parking lot someplace. And... I'm
3: here, David. I'm here in a Walmart parking lot in Billings, Montana.
1: Wow. Um, are you shopping? <laughs> Is that... Can, no. Um, Corey? No.
3: I'm just enjoying the hospitality of the Walmart park parking lot so that I can join you guys on deep state radio. Although if you want, I could go in and buy something.
1: Are you stealing their wifi?
3: No, I'm, 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 I'm <laughs> no. no, I'm absolutely not. I'm, I'm, but Walmart, um, parking lots are famous for being friendly to all. Apparently you can park here and sleep here overnight. Uh, you can bring your camper. So That's nice. I Pretend that I'm a camper.
1: Yeah, there's the same thing true here in New York City. What's called Sixth Avenue.
3: <laughs> yeah. Well, they don't have Sixth Avenue here in Montana, so we have to make do with Walmart parking
1: lots. Well, that's that's good, Rosa. We've been talking about what policy proposals make America stronger, um, uh, starting inside out here at home, and um, you heard some of what Ed said. I believe, uh, Corey. We started this out with a uh, discussion about President Biden's budget, um, and uh, Corey embraced the uh, investments in uh, health and in education, um, and uh, and defended the idea of spending money at a at, at a at a roughly the current level on 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 defense. What do you think in the Walmart parking lot in Billings, Montana?
3: Well, as a voice from the Walmart parking lot um, I actually will take a slightly different tack. Uh, I think we need to work on addressing the incredible partisan divide in the US uh, for the following reason. I mean, not, not only because it's problematic in and of itself but also because I think it makes it very hard for anyone globally to trust us and trust that we won't be constantly seesawing from you know, radically different policy approach, to radically different policy approach as administrations change. I mean, for, for, for many, for many decades, the foreign policy mantra was politics stops at the water's edge and for better or for worse, in some ways you could say it was for worse, um, but there wasn't enough creative thinking and there was a little bit too much groupthink going on. But for better or for worse for decades, I think it's fair to say that American foreign policy did not Change radically from Republican to Democratic administrations. You know there there were there were shifts, but they were relatively subtle. You know they were course corrections, not not radically different approaches. And with Trump coming in, um, we we really sort of ricocheted from the Obama era to. You know I won't even go up. I don't. I'm not even going to try to come up with a word to describe Trump's foreign policy. See in a single word. I'll let you guys figure it out for yourself. Um,
1: Corey, but, Corey you know, now will we're know back. an Aztec word. She, Corey was <laughs> speaking Aztec earlier.
3: The, the Aztecs <laughs> probably had fifty-two different words to describe yeah. that kind of fucked-upness. Yeah. Um. um but uh, you know, and now we're back in the Biden era, and things are—you <laughs> know—we're going on a kind of course correction, course steadying um, after heavy seas. I'm—I'm getting lost in my metaphor here. Um. But but you know if a Republican wins in in 2020 or in 2024, uh, if the rest of the world thinks that we're just going to you know flip flop all over the place again, um, it will make people very very reluctant to enter into any arrangement with the United States that depends on our reliability as a as a partner and ally, and it will make our enemies also think that we are not likely to be steadfast and that they can just wait out any given administration uh, and hope that the next one will be more favorable to them. And that is a really devastating thing. Um, I, I know it sounds like that's, it's a, it's a more inchoate thing uh, than industrial policy, for instance, um, which I also heartily applaud. Um, it's, it's much more inchoate, but I do think that there are concrete things that can be done by the Biden administration to address the partisan divide, some of which Biden, frankly, is already doing just by not being hysterical and not being an asshole. Um, but some of which involve things like putting together national service uh, on, a, on a really large scale, because I think, you know, in the past, America has recovered from significant divides in part through the sense of all pulling together to, for a common purpose. And we obviously don't wanna to have to have a world war or be the next thing it takes to get us back together. But I think national service could accomplish similar objectives uh, without uh, hundreds of thousands of people dying.
1: Well, first of all, I don't, I'm not surprised that you support all of this. Weren't you named after Rosa Luxemburg?
3: Why, yes, David, I was. I was also named after <laughs> Rosa Parks.
1: <laughs> well, that, no, that's a good twofer, as that kind of goes. And I'm also not surprised that you would be concerned about um, partisan politics in America if you're in the state of Montana, where the governor is Greg Gianforte, who is famous a long time right. ago for punching a reporter, but in the past two weeks for shooting an endangered species and then getting COVID. Um,
3: right. <laughs> he said He said, whoops about the, you know, it was just a big whoopsie.
1: Yeah, he is, he is a real um, piece of work. Uh, Corey, you may want to respond to all of this, but I'd like to ask you an add-on question. And this is just one of those questions that comes up a lot. And I'm sure you've answered it 50,000 times in your life, but I'd like you to answer it for our listeners. Um, okay. And that is, why should the United States spend 12 times, you know, the the, the equivalent on defense of the next 12 nations added up. Because one of the divides here is the Republican people on the Hill immediately were like, this is way too little money on defense. And Bernie Sanders said, no, we should cut 10% from defense. Now, I've actually never seen a business that, you know, couldn't afford to cut 10% and still continue to operate just because of the kind of fatty deposits that exists in all large organizations, um, why is is defense the exception to the rule in this regard?
0: It is unquestionably true that you could cut at least 10% out of the defense budget and do no damage to the national defense if Congress would permit you to do that. And I don't mean by allowing spending cuts, but stopping giving raises rotely every year, um, uh, allowing us to redesign the acquisition system so it's more responsive and less litigious. Uh, So you unquestionably could do that, but Congress probably won't do that. And we do still have to defend the nation. So my answer to uh, why do we want Uh, 12 times why do we want a defense budget as big as the next 12 contenders first of all because we have more obligations as the dominant power of the order that sets and enforces rules we have more obligations than they do second in using military force you never want to cut close to the margin You want to win by a lot, because that's how you prevent people from challenging you. And that's how you make sure that the fog of war and mistakes and bad judgment and unexpected innovation don't spoil what you are setting out to do.
1: Let me ask you a very quick follow-up question there. One of the things that Biden has proposed doing in this budget, which is not something the average person would notice... Uh, But I did notice that a lot of the military publications picked up on it right away was eliminating um, something called the OCO, Overseas Mm -hmm. Contingency Operations, which has, you know, in the minds of many people emerged as a kind of a slush fund, like a $70 billion slush fund that presidents tend to use to, you know, for a variety of purposes. The idea originally was to fund wars. But do you think that's a good idea?
0: Um, I have mixed emotions about it. I absolutely agree that the OCO account has become a gigantic slush fund. And this has been true for almost 20 years, right? Like, um, when the US was at the height of the war in Iraq, uh, the OCO funds were what the army called rolling modernization namely we weren't going to replace what got destroyed with the same we were going to make much 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 better um and those kinds of choices should actually be in the baseline budget not in a slush fund um because the oco account uh you know when we had the um, the sequestration legislation the the bipartisan budget deal the OCO accounts go straight onto the deficit. They didn't count against any budget ceilings. So it's a way to cheat. And I'm, I think it's good governance that the Biden administration's dialing it way back. But it's also true that Congress wants the right to separately fund the recruiting, training, and equipping of the force with its use so that in theory, they retain the power of the purse to turn off military operations. And I think that too is a good thing. We have too little congressional oversight, not too much.
3: Can I just Uh, jump in on that for a sec, David? Sure, of course. And go back to my national service theme. Um, Because one of the reasons it is so hard to persuade Congress to make any meaningful cuts uh, is that they're terrified of job losses in their districts. Um, I think that, The only way, politically speaking, the only realistic way to make any substantial cuts tolerable, if we decide that that is the way to go, is to couple it with a variety of job creation programs, of which national service could be and should be a very large part. Um, You know that then you're not saying jobs are just going away; you're saying we're we're the jobs are changing because what has happened to some to some extent with parts of our military. You know, it's become kind of the defense budget has become a kind of full employment program Uh, and nobody wants to cut it because nobody wants lots of people out of jobs. And I have absolutely nothing against full employment programs, Um, but the military budget is not the way to do it.
1: Let me pick up on Rose's point, Ed, about um, national uh, service and your point about, you know, industrial policies and interventions and I, and 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 i, I my question's going to be a little longer than i like because it, i'm sort of formulating it on the fly here but the you know we're we're sort of 70 days into the biden presidency and uh he's already indicated his sense of what makes a country stronger by first going for the american rescue plan uh by pushing very heavily on covid response and by now going for um, the American Jobs Plan, which is an infrastructure plus job creation project, um, and I was thinking, you know, how does this compare to what we've had in the past? And I'm not going to go into it in huge detail, but the 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 the, the previous sort of high watermark mark for hundred days plans was the Roosevelt administration, and it had the Federal Emergency Relief Administration, which created about, you know, some some number of hundreds of thousands of jobs um, and helped people out, food kitchens and so forth. Civilian Conservation Corps, which sent people out to work in, in, uh, in, in, uh, who didn't have jobs in, in, in sort of natural parks and other places like that, employed 2.5 million men. Agricultural Adjustment Administration, which helped farmers who were struggling. The National Industry Re- Recovery Act, um, which was a, an infrastructure program, as was the Tennessee Valley Authority. And I looked at it, and I looked at the you know sort of uh, total uh, uh, numbers involved. Obviously, the numbers today from a cost standpoint are much bigger. Um, but in terms of the scope of the response, the millions of jobs that are supposed to be created, um, the, the, the size of the infrastructure response— Uh, And in particular, by adding to it this level, this issue of recovery, where within the first 100 days, um, uh, the Biden administration will likely have administered 200 million vaccines. There there were only 135 million people in the United States in 1933, when Roosevelt was instituting all of this. Uh, I'm not saying that, you know, it's kind of apples and oranges, but it just gives you a sense of the scope of the recovery effort that is involved here, the scope of what's trying to be achieved, and the complexity of what's trying to be achieved in these first hundred days, and I, I just was interested in your 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 reaction to that because it does seem to me that what we're seeing here, um, it's 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 more than just politics to say that it's historic. It it, it actually is.
2: Yeah, I I think it probably is um, the um the question is whether it will stick i mean all the things that you mentioned um from not just Roosevelt's first 100 days but from you know his 12 years as president um like social security um like the the labor relation the, the Wagner act like um the the creation of um a much more interventionist and active federal government and of course um um the implicit of the guarantee of, of employment. The, these are things that lasted for 30, 40 years before Reaganism um, began to undo, um, undo them. I would hope that Biden is building that kind of foundation uh, and that we are you know, at, 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 um, at that much sort of um, overused term a, a moment of paradigm shift in American politics. And I think if you look at the sort of poetry, the cycles of American history, you do get sort of 30, 40, 50 year cycles of political ascendancy and the neoliberal um, ascendancy, you know, dating from the late 70s, the mid to late 70s, um, is, I think, exhausted and I think um, needs replacing. Um, so I hope that you're right, but a lot of the answer to that depends on what the rest of the system, well, partly on Biden's luck and competence, but also partly on what the rest of the system permits him to do, and you, you know better than I that a lot of the New Deal got struck down by the Supreme Court. It was a hostile Supreme Court. Uh, and Roosevelt eventually, in frustration, attempted to pack the courts and failed, and history declares that effort to have been a failure. But actually, what happened was um, that the attempt clearly made the Supreme Court think twice, and it started passing, um, it started upholding New Deal legislation from then on. There was one justice whose name I forget, you'll probably remember, who's switched his vote and it became known as um, a switch in time, saved nine. Biden has got a hostile Supreme Court. Uh, it's very hostile to re-regulation. It's very hostile to Voting Rights Act, um, a, a voting right, uh, rights reform, um, and it's very pro-business. And the direction he's going in is not would not be considered from that ideological vantage point to be pro-business. I think it is, in fact, it's pro-economy, and therefore it's ultimately pro-business. But he's going to have to confront the Supreme Court, and as we were discussing earlier, the filibuster as well. Um, so I hope this is going to be comparable. At the moment, it's still in the balance. It's early days.
1: Uh, no, no, no doubt that's true, and I think. That's a good point. Some of these initiatives of the first hundred days, like the Federal Emergency Relief Administration, ultimately became the Social Security program and the Works Projects Administration (WPA), uh, which had longer legacies. Um, but you're 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 absolutely right. In the environment, you know, there there major forces at play that want to reverse this, and it it does come back to your 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 prior point about uh, the filibuster um, and how you know, absent some reform in that regard, much of this may die a warning. Um, let me go. Uh, well, Rosie intervened a minute ago, but th- let, me, let me go to Corey and then I'll go to Rosa. Um, but some of this has actually happened. And one of the things that struck me is, you know, sometimes you put your head down and you, you do what you got to do. And as it turns out, it sends a message. And, you know, in in four months, the United States has gone from being a laggard on vaccines to being a leader on vaccines, and uh, even with having sort of large pockets of the country where Rosa likes to hang out, uh, where where you know they they kind of resist this stuff, um, and uh, that you know hitting this two hundred million number uh, next week, all Americans will be eligible to be vaccinated. Uh, I've gotten a lot of feedback from overseas. Uh, from Canada, from Mexico, people saying we're jealous. How'd you do that? That's 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 got a foreign policy consequence, right?
0: Absolutely, it does. Uh, you know, we very often think of ourselves as you know awesome because we landed a man on the moon, but we forget that that was after Sputnik, after rockets were blowing up on launch pads. For years and years, the U.S. isn't good at having it right. We're good at getting it right, and it's been delightful to be reminded how good the United States can be when the people governing it care about governing. Um, you know, it it's it's so weird to me that President Trump, for all his adoration of authoritarians and desire to uh, be evita Peron. Uh, he basically was unwilling to use the federal government authorities like the Defense Production Act that have been so important in ramping up vaccine production. I mean we're what a week away from vaccinations going from being a supply problem to being a demand problem in the US. Um, and it sounds like lots of gears are beginning to mesh in thinking about how do we become vaccine providers to the global south um, in ways that as you suggested, David, will also have huge foreign policy consequences.
1: You know, it was very smart of you to use the space race as, as a, an a, 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 a analogy here, because today is one of the biggest anniversaries in the history of the space race, but I presume you knew that, Corey.
0: No, I didn't. What is the today?
1: Today is the 60th anniversary of the first man entering Earth orbit, Yuri Gagarin, on April 12th, ah, 1961.
0: Okay, uh, thank you for that. Well, um, I, just,
1: I just wanted to add that. I was like a little space nerd when I was a kid. and I, <laughs> When I was like 10 years old, I discovered that if you wrote a note to NASA, they would send you stuff. Like pictures, of ast- pictures of astronauts and that kind of thing, and so I ended up having a big file cabinet at home, full of NASA promotional stuff. Um, C.K.
0: Uh, Dexter Haven, you're a man of unsuspected depth.
1: Uh, yeah, well, yeah. Well, <laughs> in my case, all depth is unsus- unsuspected. Uh, Rosa, how's how does all this play in, in out where you are right now? Are you talk? Do you talk to people out there? Do you just? You know, Uh, I I don't talk to anybody,
3: David. Yeah, I'm like the lone ranger with my dog.
1: Yeah. So you haven't actually spoken to anybody (laughs) in Wyoming. No, but I I
3: am sitting in the Walmart parking lot, soaking up the ambiance. So uh, I'm pretty sure that about three quarters of those articles that you've read in the newspaper in the last uh, four or five years about what real America is like involved reporters who actually just sat in Walmart parking lots and soaked up the ambiance. So So I'm right there with them.
1: Yeah, do you have a gun? <laughs> do you have a gun rack in your car?
3: No, I do not, David. Um, no, no I, I've talked to a few people, but we have not discussed politics because the way to, the way to a, a happy, peaceful existence, um, at the moment, I think, lies through not discussing politics. <laughs>
1: um, we, yeah, no, there's there's no qu- there's no question about that. Um, in terms of prioritizing the various things we've talked about here, Rosa. In, it, if the United States wants to send a message to the world that sort of we're back and we are who we said we were, what's the single most important thing that the Biden administration ought to focus on?
3: Oh, that's an impossible question. I don't know how to answer it because I don't think there is a single thing. Uh, or certainly, there's. You know, they're, they're doing the right things. They're doing all the right things. You know. Um, which is to say they are reassuring allies. They are letting adversaries know that Trump is gone and it's not gonna be all hugs and kisses anymore. Um, they're, they're acting sane. You know, they're, they're acting calm, they're acting sane. That is what I think we need more than anything. It's not any particular policy. Uh, it's just that sense of, we're not gonna be wacky for at least the next four years. Um, you know, we're not gonna be dangerously irresponsible. I, I don't think in terms of policies, I don't think there's, there's a, a one single thing that somehow reassures people. I think it really is the package. I mean, I know it's a cop out, but, but you know, what's the top priority? We don't have the luxury of doing you know, one thing at a time. We have to kind of do a whole lot of things at once. And they've been doing it. I mean, I really take my hat off to the administration so far. Um, it's really been astonishing how much they have been able to get done on so many fronts in such a short time
1: let me flip that question on its head. And of course, you know, these are theoretical questions. I know you can't, there's no right answer. But Ed, um, w- what is the one thing that could take place that might be most, or you can pick more than one, but that might be most um, damaging? I, You know, I was thinking, I saw a, a, a bit, uh, it was actually on last week tonight with John Oliver last night, talking about how Biden had come in and said, I'm going to reverse- Uh, Trump's refugee policies. And he hasn't yet uh, reversed the limits and the number of refugees. And it's starting to produce some backlash around the world. People saying, you said you were going to do this. You haven't done it. And there seems to be a similar set of issues regarding the the southern border. Um, What do you think are the things that might happen in the next couple of months that will really sort of leave people scratching their heads?
2: Um, Yeah, I mean, that might be, the refugee question might be a bandwidth problem, you know, I mean, there's a lot of legal work that has to go into these um, executive orders, and they, as Rosa has just been outlined, have taken on so much that there might just be a a bandwidth problem there. I mean, the the Northern Triangle situation is going to be incredibly difficult to solve because it's insoluble. I mean, you know, you, you can... It's short of going in and occupying Honduras, El Salvador, uh, and Guatemala, and you know imposing a benign dictatorship on these countries and eliminating the criminal gangs and closing down corruption and trying to reverse the effects of climate change, Which, on-
3: unfortunately, we haven't been so good at that so far, Ed.
2: No, it's not. It's not America's forte. It's not anybody's forte, really. Um, and you know, I I appreciate the sort of double-edged sword there of Kamala Harris being given that portfolio. It's it's not one that you know anybody is likely to excel at. Um, but uh, you know that's clearly going to be a problem. I, I I honestly don't think the world is going to look at the American America southern border and think um, there are problems there. This is terrible. They just factored that in. There is always going to be, and there has for many. A decades a problem on America's southern border and long-term sort of mini Marshall Plan engagements with Central America you know, are clearly part of the answer, the solution to that problem, but um, they are long-term, you know, they're, they're not quick fixes. Um, the thing that America could do wrong that I think would damage it is sort of flipping uh, Corey's very good point about uh, vaccinating the global south on its head um, and that is not is not following through on that. Um, you know, by my back of the envelope calculations, roughly 5% of the world's population has had at least one shot in this first quarter, first three months really of the vaccine rollout. And most of those are in the global north um, uh, and a few of them are in China. Um, that if we're generous means 25% rather than 20% will be inoculated by the end of 2021. Sixty percent by you know twenty twenty three. It's got to be dramatically quicker than that, um, and it's got to be coordinated. So I think um, I do think that's the single best thing um, that the Biden administration can do globally. But I, but I also think it's something that would be easy not to do well. It's a very very difficult task logistically um, and in terms of international coordination, and then. Country by country in the developing world, the um, distribution systems and storage systems and um, eligibility criteria, the, the, there are lots of lots of challenges there, not all of which the Biden administration should have to solve, but it's going to have to be pretty deep into a lot of these with its partners to get a much better timetable than the one I've just um, the back of the envelope one that I just laid out.
1: So, Corey and Rosa, we've just got a couple of minutes left and we go to each with a similar sort of a cousin of the question to add, which is, what is it that the Biden administration has done this far or is likely to do in the next couple of months that is likely to, it seems likely to raise questions overseas or make overseas uh, partners, you know, uh, uneasy?
0: Yeah, or- the gap between what they say they're going to do and what our actual risk tolerance is. You know, Secretary Biden was talking really tough about the defense of Taiwan. Um, Secretary, and,
1: Secretary Blinken or President Biden? Secretary oh, Biden.
0: excuse me. Secretary Blinken over the weekend was right. Was commendably talking very tough on the defense of Taiwan and also talking very tough uh, about what Russia must not do to Ukraine um but there may be a temptation to test us and i would hate to see a gap emerge between what we say we're going to do and what we are actually willing to do because that will set all of our security relationships and alliance relationships on edge
1: yeah i by the way over the weekend did a piece in the daily beast on just that subject um and it was inspired a little bit by the fact that uh I saw a Michael Crowley article in the New York Times in which he talked to Richard Haas and there had been an article he had done saying, we need strategic clarity with regard to Taiwan. <laughs> and, and I was like, no,
3: no. Yeah.
0: <laughs> Not. You know, I have the same reaction. <laughs> I think, um, you know, Taiwan is to the US-China relationship what Berlin was to the Western-Soviet relationship. Um, both important and indefensible. And exactly. so I think we need to be a lot more cautious than
1: that. Exactly, exactly. Um, Rosa, the same question yeah, to you.
0: The,
3: the only thing I, I would add to what Corey just said is that uh, I don't think it's entirely, something bad happening with regard to Taiwan is not entirely within the control of Biden administration, needless to say. I mean, I think they basically have two options, right? They, one option would be, let's not sound tough about Taiwan because we are not entirely sure we have the capability or the political will to do anything about it. So let's, let's be squishy on Taiwan. That would be horrible for all kinds of reasons, including the ones that just articulated. Um, or they could talk tough on Taiwan uh, in the hopes that it will have a deterrent effect, um, which is what Tony Blinken did over the weekend. Um, the Chinese will do what the Chinese will do. And and we don't know exactly what internal calculations they're going to make. But but if the Chinese decide to test us, I don't think that's, I don't think that will be because of the tough talk, you know, that that not talking tough might make them just as determined to test us. So I think the Biden administration is, is in a, a little bit of a no-win situation on that. And I think we talked about this a little bit in last week's podcast. I, I think that they have got to be just praying that the Chinese have the good sense to say, you know what, we've got we've got so many other irons in the fire with the US, let's not push this one too far.
1: Yeah, no, no, no doubt, no doubt about that. I think the secret of what the way you've got to handle both these things is to avoid getting to the crisis point. Well, look, uh, guys, this has been extremely illuminating as always and uh, uh, entertaining as well. Uh, We will track all of these things later this week. We've got some uh, uh, special conversations coming up, including one one with uh, Eric Swalwell, our friend who's a member of Congress, uh, and uh, one-on-one with uh, Pulitzer Prize-winning New York Times columnist, Nick Kristoff, as well as our other regularly scheduled shows. For more on them, go to the dsrnetwork.com. And if you're there, uh, you know, click on the membership thing and help support all of this uh, because there's obviously a lot to track and we're trying to help you. Increasingly, on an interactive basis, several of these shows will be shows that you can pose your own questions if you're a member. So join up and uh, uh, help us. Uh, ask the right questions here at the DSR Network. In the meantime, Rosa, be safe way out there in the American Plains, Um, and uh, Corey and Ed, be safe there in Washington, D.C. Thank you all very much. Thanks to everybody for listening, and uh, be healthy, everybody. Bye-bye.